Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of The Brendan Burns Show. Joining me today is Kevin Parker. Kevin is an inspiration, a motivation, and one of the coolest guys that I've met in a long time. Kevin was telling me about, a little bit about his story, which is so inspiring, so incredible, but I'm not going to steal his thunder. So without further ado, Kevin, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. It's an absolute pleasure to be on the show. Uh, basically, growing up, I had the normal life. I played baseball and football. My stepfather was my coach. I had a normal childhood. I was a great student. Um, I had plenty of friends in high school growing up, but I played a lot of sports during high school, and I never really had a job. So uh, eventually, I started smoking pot and selling pot to make some money while I was in school, and uh, it quickly became a, ha a habit. Uh, in high school, I was I was uh, I was in the honors class. I did very well in school, but slowly but surely, drugs started taking over my life. I started smoking pot, and then uh, on the weekends, I started dabbling with cocaine and ecstasy. In fact, one time in high school, I did cocaine all night, and uh, I actually showed up the next day with no sleep, still high, and I ended up having a seizure on the baseball field. At uh -huh. this point, I realized that I had a problem. But how old were you when that happened? I was 16 years old. Got it. And what do you think uh, led to the transition from smoking weed into harder drugs? Well, I, I, was, I was easily influenced when I was a younger kid. Uh, somebody yeah. I really, really looked up to, I found that was doing this and selling this. And um, innocently, I just picked it up and tried it. And I was immediately hooked. As soon as I tasted cocaine, I loved it. And yeah. when I realized that feeling and that sensation, that rush that I got in my head, uh, it was really difficult to stop. But uh, right. it started at just a parting thing during the weekends, and it quickly became, um, it's kind of consumed my life after a while. Uh, I got out of high school unscathed. I graduated on time. Everything was good. Uh, I was like the, I was uh, one of the most popular kids in class. I was one of the best players on my baseball team, on my football team, and just about, Six weeks after I graduated, I got onto a head-on collision with a bus. Uh, the bus ran the red light, and um, and I went head-on in collision at an intersection, and it completely destroyed my neck and my back. So I went to a few different uh, treatments, and nothing was really working all that well. And um, when you say destroyed, um, you just had a lot of pain come on. Did anything break? Well, I had uh, I, I, I had two herniated discs in my neck and two herniated discs in my back, and I had um, sciatic nerve damage, and I found that I had scoliosis, wow. and all of these things kind of played into part. So I started going to different therapies at 18 years old, not knowing what to do. And one mm -hmm. of my friends said, "Hey, why don't you go to a pain management doctor? They'll give you painkillers, and they'll really help you out." So you know, I thought all right, this could be all right. I'll, I'll get rid of my pain. I'll start acting normal again. And I'll get a little killer buzz on the, on the way there. So I started taking painkillers. It started out at about five milligrams and uh, that started working for a little while. But as everybody knows, I didn't take these kind of medications. You quickly get a tolerance toward them. So mm -hmm. I went back to the doctor. I said, these are not working doc. What, what could you do for me? So he just up my dose and then he went to 7.5s and 10s and 15 milligrams and then I was taking 30 milligrams four times a day mm. and I didn't even have I didn't even know the magnitude of the amount of medication that I was taking because I wasn't aware of it at the time but uh, at this point I was completely hooked um, do you think there was a correlation between when you were using cocaine in high school and so on and like for example 
if you didn't do drugs in high school, if you didn't try the cocaine, do you think things could have played out differently when you took this round of medication or no? Well, I think some people just have addictive personalities. I think I have addiction in my family. Um, yeah. from the my mother and father were alcoholics and I've grown yeah. up them seeing them drinking constantly when I was younger. Mm. And uh, thing that I ever tried, whether it be food, um, sex, uh, drugs, um, sports, adrenaline, everything that I've ever done, I'm an extremist. I get into give something. Me, give I me more. Yeah, I'm just like, give me, give me. I'm such a glutton. <laughs> just want all of it you know so when i like something i just jump in it with two feet and i don't and i don't look back but uh i think even if i didn't do drugs and i would have taken painkillers i would have immediately been hooked because i just i love that feeling yeah and one and one other question before we move forward is when you had that experience in high school with, with the cocaine induced seizure um how did you stop if you did i mean did you did you stop uh taking cocaine at like high levels? And if so, how were you able to stop using at that point in your life before the car accident? Well, uh, I, I never actually really stopped. I was more of a binge user. I used, when I used, I just couldn't stop. I would do it until the sun came up, the birds would chirp, and I had no money left in my pocket. And there was no other way that I can get any more. Yeah. And then I would stop. I didn't know how to stop it. But I would, I would say to myself, I'm not going to do this for two weeks or a month. And I wouldn't. Yeah. But if I had drinks or I was around the wrong person, people, places, and things, those are the things, those are the triggers when you're doing drugs. Wow. You know? That's important for people to know. So it was when you were surrounding yourself with the wrong people. Mm-hmm. What And what else? What when, help I, you? when I was in the wrong environments mm-hmm. and, I was, and, and something reminded me of that or things like feelings and uh, situations and just any kind of experience that sent the trigger in my mind that I said, Oh, cocaine. And then ding, a light would go off in my head and then I'd find it available or something like that, you know? So that's it. That's awesome. That's a huge takeaway for all the listeners right off the bat. So we get to the point where you're now um, on the painkillers after the car accident and you're up in the dosage and and now what, what's going on? So now I'm in high school. I'm taking these painkillers. Uh, I'm starting to get really addicted to them. And uh, I couldn't sit still in class. I didn't know what I wanted to do in college. So I dropped out of college and I joined the union. I was a concrete laborer for the, for the union in New York City building high rises. I did a bunch of skyscrapers. I built Yankee Stadium. I did Shea Stadium. I did a bunch of the towers in Manhattan. And I was working grueling hours, 12, 14 hours a day, six days a week, backbreaking slave work. Rain, sleet, hail, snow, no matter what, we were out there, 40 stories in the air, hanging from the side of the building. Oh, my God. a professional slave, and that's what I needed to do. They basically used my body to move things and, and do this kind of grunt work. And I would have to take at least two 30-milligram oxycodone just to get out of bed. And everywhere from anywhere from three to four hours, I would take another one throughout the day. So I was taking anywhere from six to ten. 30 milligram oxycodone just to get through the day. And at right. this point I worked and I couldn't even go to doctors. So eventually I lost my, uh, my prescription. I'd either A, go doctor shopping or B, I would get them from the streets and I was spending $800 a week on painkillers just so I can go to work, just so I can afford my painkillers, just so I can go to work. So the it was cycle. a cycle that I was just stuck in and I oh. felt completely hopeless and I was a slave to my addiction. 
So this went on for five years. Uh, I was doing them throughout my early 20s, early teens. And uh, I, I didn't even notice, but slowly but surely, every single thing in my life was slowly getting stripped away. My friends, my family, my dignity, my self-respect, everything that I ever had, my bank account, my apartment, my car, everything just vanished before my eyes. And all of a sudden I looked around and I had nothing left. Every friend that ever loved me, every girlfriend, every relationship I ever was in, they left me because of drugs, not because I was a bad boyfriend, but because of the damage that I was doing to myself and these, these bad behaviors that I had, they just couldn't stand around and be, uh, be a part of it. So yeah. I just turned one day, I lost everything. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I, obviously at the time I was doing cocaine when I did it, I couldn't stop. And, uh, I was really, really depressed. I was in a really bad place. I couldn't stop. I tried so many times to stop on my own. So what do you think, what do you think um, you could have used at that point? Like what, like, cause I'm, I'm trying to, you know, I'm, it's an amazing story. We haven't even gotten to the real story yet. I'm so excited to share that with everyone and, and how much we can all learn from you. But again, with that wearing the hat of like, how can we help people? Because I'm sure there are millions of people out there in the world who are right now today in that spot that you were in of the five years of the cycle of money for drugs, for money for drugs. and then losing all the important things in their lives along the way. What could have, what could you have used at that point? What can we do to give to people or help people who are, feel stuck? They know it's a problem, but they don't know what to do. Well, a big emotion that I was feeling, two emotions that I was feeling were a little different from each other. I was feeling guilt and I was feeling shame. I was feeling very guilty because I was doing things specifically that actions that I was taking that were making me feel very guilty and it was bringing my confidence down. I didn't want to open up to people to tell them what the problem was. And I was feeling, I was such a shame of myself because I let this got to a point where I had no control over it. And it was taking all kinds of different um, relationships from me and everything. And I was too afraid to just go out and ask for help. You know, there was a very negative stigma around addiction and addicts that they're such terrible people. And, you know, like, Oh, that's a junkie. That's a, you know, that person's lesser human than, somebody like me but in actuality addiction is not biased nor racist it can happen to any person brown black green yellow any social economic background you could be a doctor you could be a lawyer you could be a homeless person it happens to everybody and i've seen it happen to everybody so what you need to do you need to spread education and awareness and so people are educated a about it and aware about the dangers and everything and and know that there are options and there are um, things out there for help. You know, I was scared to go to an AA meeting or something like that. I didn't want to sit around in a circle and say, hi, my name is Kevin and I'm an addict. I just thought I was better than that. And also I didn't want to admit to a bunch of different people that I was doing that. So it was like kind of really hard to come out to my families and friends. And I think just um, eradicating the negative stigma that goes around addiction and making mm-hmm. them feel like lesser of a human or like or should be ashamed of themselves or something like that. Because yeah. There is help out there, but a lot of people don't want to grab it because they feel like they're they're less less of a person if they were going to ask for help. But in actuality, I feel like people that go through recovery are absolute warriors. When you beat addiction, you are the strongest person that I've ever met. The strongest people I've ever met are people that recovered from addiction. Yeah, and they are, yeah. They are clever. They're, they're strong-willed. They could do anything with their lives. And I think empowering them instead of having them fight from their knees is a real strong part of the process of recovery and becoming a, a productive person in society. 
couldn't have said it better myself. I was having coffee with a friend a few weeks ago and there's a park near where I live in, in New York city. Mm -hmm. And, um, I was sharing. So, you know, she was asking me more for like career advice, but I was getting into a little bit of like the personal development theme. I, I just love personal growth. So I'm like helping her not only how to make more money and get a good job, but like thinking about true fulfillment purpose. And I, I don't even remember what I was talking about. I think mindfulness got in, in the mix a little bit. And there was a guy, a construction worker, sitting on the bench across from us, and he uh, he looked up at us and he's like, "Hey, I'm really I'm sorry to eavesdrop or interrupt, but I just wanted to share this quote that I think would be really meaningful to both of you." And he said, um, "The past is history. Tomorrow is a mystery. The present is a gift." And that quote isn't really relevant to our discussion, but but what's relevant is. I thanked him so much for sharing that. And, and I was said, you know, where did you learn that? And he said, I learned it in AA. And I, I just saw like the strength inside of him. And I don't know if people would agree with this statement, but I think that in America today, in 2018, with social media, drugs, alcohol, football, fantasy, social media, everything. I think everyone has on some level, some type of compulsive behavior or undiagnosed. Mm -hmm addiction in some way not everyone is doing what i used to do without like for me it was food alcohol excessive travel isolation like social media those were my addictions and i've done a lot of work to overcome that and so when i see someone else who has beat addiction i, I completely resonate with that word warrior and i just mm -hmm. saw this guy and i was like that guy is a warrior and mm -hmm. I, I just think i couldn't agree more with the strength of people because in, at least in my experience, I, I really felt a lot of shame as well, which fueled the fire to then cause me to go behave in addictive ways. And to have this like stigma of like, you should be ashamed of yourself for having the addiction. It's like, time out. I have enough fucking shame that's causing <laughs> I don't need more shame to then go get better. Yeah. So I totally, I hear you on that. So anyway, you were talking about, um, you know, being surrounded with the wrong people. You were talking about continuing to use the prescription medication it was becoming worse and worse and then i'll let you take it from there all right so i was i was on the verge of losing everything i mean uh, i lost my i was in the process of losing my apartment they shut my my lights off my gas off uh it was in the middle of the winter i was at an apartment with my brother he wasn't paying any of the rent and we, i was just stuck i had to sell my car and um I was dabbling in any drug that I can get my hands, Xanax. I even smoked crack a few times and it wasn't even like me because I was just in such a bad place. Because like you said, there's that, there's that cycle, you know, it starts with pain and then you go through this, this cycle where you, you use, then you, then you have that quick minute of bliss, then you feel regret and depression and then it ends up in pain again and you're back at square one. So yeah. it was just a cycle that I was stuck in and I was completely lost. I lost absolutely everything. My girl broke up with me. I winded up moving back in with my father. And, uh, he let me, he let me live with him for about, I think eight months. And by like, by like three months, I didn't have a job. I wasn't doing anything. I was, I was stealing change out of my dad's freaking, um, he had one of those five gallon, uh, gallon water jugs full of change. And I was living off that stealing for my father. And that was never like me. I was never a thief. And I realized it was a serious problem at that time. My father would see me nodding out in his house smoking a cigarette and I'd almost start fires and he'd like video record me and be like, like, look at you, you're high. I'm like, I know dad, I'm tired. I'm tired. He's like, you're drooling. And I was in complete denial. I wouldn't admit it because I was ashamed. And I looked up to my father and, um, they tried their best, but they, they, uh, staged an intervention. 
they didn't do it the right way, but they stormed me. And then when I first woke up in the morning, him, my mother, my father, my brother, they all came up. They started yelling at me and telling me, you got a problem. You have to go away for 36 months, at least a two or three year program, or you're out of here and we don't want nothing to do with you. And I just felt attacked. And I was just like, you know what? The hell with you. I was like, I'm leaving. I was high as a kite when I woke up. I don't know how. I, uh, it, was in the, it was in November. Uh, it was in November. Uh, November 22nd, 2011. 11 and um, I left the house. I, I, I was in shorts and a T-shirt. I grabbed a book bag. I put two pairs of sh shoes in it. Um, I guess one more shirt or something like that. I was just out of my mind. I grabbed my safe. I threw it on my shoulder and I stormed out of the house. I was like, I don't want to have nothing to do with you guys. I'm out of here. And I stormed out my house. And uh, a big of the reason why I didn't want to leave is because my girlfriend was there and I didn't trust her there by my spy itself for two or three years. I, you know, I had issues with that. So I wasn't really looking for the benefits of my life. So I stormed to my friend's house. I walked about a mile in the freezing cold on November to my friend's house with a safe on my shoulder. I must've looked like a madman. I was all pissed off walking to my friend's house. And I went there and I manipulated her. I told her, listen, my, my family's being really unfair. They, they hate me. They don't want me to live here anymore. I have nowhere to stay. She's like, you can stay here as long as you want. So I stared there that night. She cooked me a bowl of macaroni and cheese and I fell asleep. And it should have been the last meal of my life. I woke up. Well, they woke up. I didn't wake up. They woke up. They found me face first in my vomit, blue, completely unresponsive. They freaked out. They called the ambulance. The ambulance picked me up. I actually died in the ambulance. My heart stopped. They revived me with the paddles in the ambulance and they rushed me to the ICU. And I spent the next three weeks in the ICU, ICU completely unresponsive fighting for my life. I had no pain response, which is the bare minimum of brain function. They would poke me in the eyes with sharp objects or stick things underneath my nails to see if I had any brain response. I had none. I had less than 40% oxygen to my brain throughout this time. I had a, a, a 108 fever. Uh, it was averaged out at about 106, but it went up to about 108. They had me under ice blankets and machines that were pumping the blood through my limbs. I had multi-organ failure. My liver, my kidneys, my lungs were completely uh, done. They were all failing. I aspirated and seizured, so my lungs were full of throw-up. So they weren't working. So the blood, my, 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 the blood pressure plummeted. The oxygen to my brain was low. Uh, all of my limbs were turning black. Uh, I had sepsis of the blood. My blood was actually toxic to my body. And, uh, and I developed edema in my, in my limbs, which is when your fluids gather up in your limbs because of the lack of oxygen, because of, because of the, um, the liver and the kidneys not working properly. So the, the toxins in my blood were swelling up in my limbs and turning them black. Um, they looked at my parents a few times. They said, your son is not going to make it through. You know, you better make arrangements. Uh, and my parents were like, there's no way, not my son. You don't know him. He's strong. And the doctors would look at my parents like they were out of their mind. They were like, they don't, they don't understand how bad this is. They said, if your son makes it out of this alive, he is going to be completely brain dead. He's never going to be the son you once knew. He's going to be a vegetable. You're going to have to feed, bathe, and take care of him for the rest of your life. And he's going to lose all four of his limbs. Do you really want that? And they were in denial. They would not accept it. There was many ups and downs where it would go up and down, and I was still in a coma. After about three weeks, they looked at my family and said, I'm sorry, there's nothing we could do. He's not going to make it. You better make arrangements. So 
Uh, they got a priest in, priest in there to actually baptize me because I wasn't baptized. They baptized me and then they read me my last rites. And then all my family members came in to say their final goodbyes. So, and I have a huge family. And as they're all lining up and they said all their goodbyes and I was supposed to die that night on my deepest, darkest hour of my whole life, I just woke up. Nothing short of a miracle. There was nothing, no sign of it. There was no reason for me. I just woke up. And I mean, I, 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 can't, I can't describe to anybody the feeling I felt looking around that room, looking at my mother, my father, my little brother, the pain in their eyes, the things that I put them through, that was the worst feeling in my entire life. It still haunts me to this day. I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. Wow. That's, that's incredible. I mean, when you, when you talk about that and, you know, telling the, the doctor saying to your parents, first of all, I just want to honor you for your strength right now to tell this because, and, and I have to give you an apology. Like I'm, I'm getting misty myself here. I, I, I apologize for not warning you in advance that I go deep on this podcast. Yeah. And I think you're probably the third person in like 10 episodes to cry. So <laughs> you're bad in 333 right now. I had, uh, I had a woman who's a grief counselor come on to tell me the story of how her sister quickly and tragically passed away from cancer. Mm-hmm. And then within the year, her other sister, because of the first sister's death, the second sister then committed suicide. Oh my God. So sorry, Kevin, for not giving you the heads up that we get misty on the Brendan Burns show. <laughs> but I, I really, I really thank you for, for going deep and for sharing this because the reason we're talking about this is because addiction is a real problem. And mm-hmm. I want I want to help people. And and to do that, I'd love to go back to um the the intervention. We could call it maybe a failed intervention or a good like a, a well-intentioned but unsuccessful one because your family probably didn't know how to do it properly and because there's probably a lack of education in this country and world about addiction and and how to be successful with intervention. So just for the listeners out there who maybe know someone going through something difficult, what would you say to them? Hey, I want to run a successful intervention for my son, for my girlfriend, for my coworker. How, how is a successful intervention handled? Well, I actually been training to become an interventionist. Uh, so I kind of know how um well first of all you, you it, it it goes a lot better when they at least can admit that they have a problem but the biggest situation when it comes to an intervention is getting in touch with all the people in their family that are enablers all of their lifelines all of their resources all of the people that they care about the most you want to gather all of those people get them all on board talk to them before you stage this intervention you have to you have to counsel each one of them and and figure out how they're enabling this person and what, how this person values them person and then make them write down and be able to discuss and tell this person how much they care about them and how their actions have affected their lives and how concerned you are about them. You have to come from a place from concernment instead of anger and pointing fingers and blaming because then they get defensive and they want to put their hands up and they want to fight back. You right. have to come from a place of love and concern. Now you got to explain to them how they're ruining their lives and how it's affecting you and how much you care about them and the fact that you want them to get help. Now, if they don't, if they're not going to give help, then you can't support their life habits anymore. You have to basically cut your, 
your resources off. Like basically if that's their mother's like baby them, giving them mommy, you have to cut that out of their life. You have to find something that causes more pain for them than the, the actual pain of quitting drugs. You know, because there's people in everybody's life that they value, that they care about, that they need in their lives to continue their drug use, whether it be love, affection, money, a place to stay, just things that they need in their life that make them comfortable to use. But what you need to do, Tony Robbins talks about it, everything's about pain and pleasure. People do drugs for pleasure, but it causes pain. But for somebody to stop doing drugs, there has to be more pain associated um, with using drugs than stop using drugs. So yeah. you have to cause, cause an environment that by them continuing to use drugs, it's going to cause so much immediate pain that they're forced because the pain level is because people uh, try to avoid pain more than gaining pleasure. So if you can create more pain in their lives by taking away their support systems and the things that they value in their lives the most in a concerned, loving manner, and you create more pain by, take, by taking those things away and them using drugs, and they have to make the decision themselves to go away. You can't force them. You can't force a grown person, nor a pre pretty much a teen, to stop using drugs to go away. They have to make that decision consciously, and you have to help them decide that on their own. You know, you have to get them in, get to get them to the point where they decide. Wow, me doing drugs is causing more pain than me not using drugs. I mean, I say that right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. The double negative. Pain to to using. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So like you just got to get everybody involved and you, you can't come from a place of blame and hate and yet anger and, and resentment. You got to come from a place of love and concern, but you also got to show them that they're affecting all the people that they love and they're killing themselves and you won't stand by and withstand this and you're not going to support this, these, these habits or, or actions anymore. So you yeah. give them an ultimatum. Listen, I love you, but you need help. I'd like you to go away. If you don't go away, then you don't have my support in your life and your, in your, in your choices. You have to do it on your own and yeah. you take you basically take away all that value from them. And then they realize they're sitting there all by themselves. And when it comes to the point with the teetering point where they realize that it's more pain for them to do drugs and not have all these loved ones and support and resources in their life, they're like, Oh man, I think I should, I really think I should consider this. And then yeah. once you get to a program, then, you know, it's, it's in their hands, but you have to, you have to take away something that they, uh, you know, it's negative uh, punishment, you know? Yeah, yeah. Psychology, they call it negative punishment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What What are your thoughts on <clears throat> like addiction recovery programs? Either in you know go to rehab and live there for a fixed amount of time, or some kind of like outpatient program. Like, do you believe in them, or does it depend? And if so, what do you want to look for in in a sort of program? Well, I, anytime I ever cut, I, I've done the detoxes. I've never went to a thirty day program or a, a longer extended program. But uh, they do work. They do work. You, you want to get them out of, out of state so they don't have friends and people and connections for when they get out. Because you can, A, get clean and, and rehab, or B, you can get a bunch of different connections for drugs. It can go either way. So you don't want to go to a rehab facility that when you get out, you can meet up with all your buddies from rehab and, and, and use again with them. Because then you just get more connections for cheaper drugs and, you know, and that's just the way that it works. When you go away, you should go away out of state where you don't know anybody. People's places and things. It comes down to that every single time, you know. Right. So you don't want to be around the people that you rehabilitated with. You don't, and you don't want to, when they get out of rehab, they have to stay away from the people that they used to hang out with. 
It's just, it's just that simple. You can't go and hang out in the same circles with the same people that you were using with when you get out because you are almost 100% sure to use again if, if you continue with those habits. But I think, I think they're really great. You do need to look into a program. They have some really intense programs like Dynamite and things like that for younger kids. Mm -hmm. uh, there's not so many options for uh, adults as much. But um, I would suggest going away to a thing. But the problem with it is like in New York City, there's so little beds for detoxes. And a lot of programs you need to detox before you go to a 30-day program. So you have to get yourself into a bed for a 30-day for a detox before you go into a 30-day program. But usually you can't get a detox bed. So it's really, really, it's, it, there's like gray areas where it makes it difficult. And there's a lot with the insurances, you know, very, very expensive. And, you know, it's hard to get into these things, but the actual resources do work if they work, if they line up properly, but it takes a lot of energy and somebody really being diligent, uh, getting them into these programs. Mm -hmm. Awesome. That's really helpful. And, uh, <clears throat> I, I was also going to ask about, the uh, the process of of like who you spend time with like you you say the people places and things I love that I want to keep coming back to that so talking about people um, I just in my own life changed who I surround myself with in a lot of ways I used to work on Wall Street and, and with that crowd comes a lot of drugs and cocaine mm. and pills as well like it's a very similar environment where you have these like high pressure intense people so focused on accumulating wealth and obviously this is not everyone but it just there there's more of that than i'd seen in other stages in my life mm -hmm. so when i made the decision to get clean in my own way and to sort of change the course of my life i had to make that some of these hard decisions and have hard conversations around shifting my friend group and yes it was hard to like um dissociate or like disconnect from certain people in my life. But then I was also lonely for a while before I was able to connect with new people. And, mm -hmm. and I was like, so I guess one question I have for you is like, when you made this shift and got to the other side, how did you find people who were more like-minded and more on the same wavelength as you? So you had, how did you build these new friendships and relationships? Well, there's, first of all, you are, you are a culmination of the five people that you hang out with the most. But to attract those five people that you want to hang out with the most, you have to work. It comes from within. You have to work on your own stuff. So we're going to get into what happened to me when I got out of the hospital, how I got into this. Yeah. And I had to reinvent myself. Like I came back from nothing, but we'll get into that. But uh, you really have to have value to add to friends and people that you want to hang out with that are like-minded. So like, you know, you really, it really starts with self, uh, self-development before anything because you want to be able to walk into the proper circles and have something of value and, 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 and to add to anything because nobody wants to have somebody that's a life sucker in their, in their crew, you know? So you have to have something to give back. So I, I find self-development improvement is always the best way to, to get better in anything that you do. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, I, that's amazing advice. So why don't we go back to the hospital, you wake up. First of all, just like, do you remember the initial waking up? I remember having, I remember the dream that I was having in the coma. I'm actually writing a book actually about the whole entire ordeal at the moment. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, yeah, so tell me about that. Tell, tell me about the way you lesson. So when I woke up, so yeah. when I woke up, um, I was, I, I was mortified by the looks on my loved one's faces. I mean, it was haunting. It was so terrible. I didn't know what was going on. I couldn't speak. I had tubes in my throat. I had tubes in my chest. 
I couldn't say anything. I couldn't move my body. I could barely see. I was 100 pounds soaking wet. I looked at my mother. 100 I tried pounds? 100 pounds. Bone, skin and bones. I'm 200 pounds now. So I lost half of my weight in a coma. Wow. And how long were you in the coma for? Uh, three weeks. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So I was 100 pounds soaking wet. I couldn't speak because I had tubes in my throat, tubes in my chest, tubes in my genitals, tubes in my stomach. I looked around the room. I was hooked to about 10 different machines. I seen the looks on my family's face. I, was, I knew I screwed up. I didn't even know what was going on. I was terrified. I knew I messed up. I was like, I was trying to figure out what was going on. Finally, I figured out what was going on. I realized that I overdosed. And I would hear things from the doctors like, he's not going to make it. He's going to be brain dead. He's going to lose all four of his limbs. And I tried to like communicate with my mother and father, but no, I'm not brain dead. I'm not brain dead, but I couldn't speak. So I'm trying to mouth it. And I would just go like this because it was the only sound that I could make. So they thought I was brain dead because I was making those sounds, but I was just trying to communicate with the outside world. And, uh, yeah, and I remember them having me under ice blankets, and my liver and kidneys were completely failing. They tried this, like, very mild dialysis because my body was so weak, they couldn't even move me. If they would have moved me or shifted me in the bed, I would have died. My body would have fell apart. And uh, I actually developed really bad bed sores on my neck and my back and my head and my stomach and, my, I mean, my, my butt and all over my body, and they just couldn't move me because I was so fragile that I would have died if they moved any of my organs. So I developed really bad uh, abscesses on the back bottom of my, on my, on my butt and the back of my head. And that developed more complications. But uh, yeah, they were telling me I was going to be brain dead. A few times I bled out underneath. The, I had a bleeding ulcer in my rectum. They couldn't figure it out. They couldn't cauterize it. My dad picked up my, uh, my blanket. At one point I was sitting in like two or three inches of blood. My whole entire bed was filled in blood. You know, um, it was torturous. I mean, when I finally got out of the woods and they took me out of the ICU, they put me in the vent unit and they would put me on this breathing machine because my lungs weren't working properly. So at nighttime, they would shut down the oxygen just low enough so I'd survive. But I felt like I was suffocating or being waterboarded throughout the night. Like they would leave me alone. And and you, like, you were, yeah, I was, I was awake. I was awake. And I was like, Ugh. and they just chopped my leg off. They just chopped my leg off. So I'm thrashing in pain. I'm in so much pain. I, my head is killing. My, my leg is swollen from them just amputating my leg. And then they decide to take the oxygen from me. So now I'm, I'm in immense pain. And, uh, and they're shutting the oxygen off in the middle of the night. And now I'm like suffocating in my sleep. And it was the most, it was like getting waterboarded all night. And like, I couldn't, felt like I couldn't breathe. And I couldn't even tell them that I couldn't breathe because I couldn't speak because I had tubes in my throat. So like in the mornings when I would, when I would see my mother, my eyes would be this big. I'd be like, ma, don't you leave me. Like I look at her like, you better not leave me. Cause I felt like I was being tortured throughout the night until my, until my lungs started finally getting back a little bit. But, uh, there was so many different aspects that I had to learn. Like, uh, when I was in the hospital, I, I didn't eat or drink, drink anything for three months. So like people would bring, they had Thanksgiving in, in the waiting room when I was in a coma, but they would bring in food and I didn't have anything to drink or eat for three months. And I'm like dying. I would have took my other leg off for another steak or, or a sip of Gatorade. I actually conned my father into uh, giving me a little sponge dipped in the Gatorade once and, <laughs> and I'm sucking on the sponge and it's red Gatorade. And then my speech pathologist took off my, my dressings off my off my throat and there was like red stuff coming out of my neck and she was like oh my god what's going on mm -hmm. and me and my was sitting there like 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 two little guilty kids like, 
because I was trying anything to get some. I, I should have did a Gatorade commercial. My the face, the look on my face was priceless. The first time I tasted something, I was like, I almost had an orgasm. Uh, <laughs> so at was, this it, point, like early on, like they take you out of the ICU, you're like going through that process of of uh, I guess building strength in your lungs. Like at that point, did you have like a prognosis or a thought as to like because you're I mean you're fully functional, like you're you're back. But did you think that you would get back here at that point no i couldn't see it i have corneal scarring in my eye i couldn't see because they kept my eyes open when i was in a coma because they were so worried about me surviving they didn't care about the aftercare so i couldn't see so i was so delicate to life i couldn't see anything and i was on dialysis for like two months and i my my my, my insides hurt my leg hurt I couldn't, I had complete drop wrist in this wrist. It was completely nerve damage, atrophy. It was just skin and bones. So I mean, I never be able to move that hand again. I couldn't move my left shoulder. So I couldn't lift this arm up and I couldn't move this hand. I couldn't speak. I couldn't eat. I couldn't talk. I just learned how to breathe. I didn't have a leg to walk. Uh, my, I was still frying the me on the ice blankets for months. I was still had bad infections all the time. I had, I had an abscess in my butt that actually took all of my gluteus on my left side. It was actually eating through my hip bone. And they thought it was just a bed sore. And they would try to sit me up. And I'm like, no, no. And I was in immense pain. They found out there was like size of a tennis ball, an abscess from, from the, the infection from the bed sore that was on my butt. And uh, it was going to eat my bone and my, and my hip. Thank God they finally looked at it. And they had to like, they had to suck it all out with a vacuum. And they packed it with this with this gauze pad and every time they cleaned the dressing it was like a magic trick they would pull out red gauze pad out of the back of my uh back of my glute it was very very painful and uh, i didn't think i was going to make it because i kept hearing the doctors have to be negative they can't tell you oh you're definitely going to be good they'd be like you know you might not walk again you know you have really bad damage you have a lot of nerve damage i was supposed to lose all four limbs so i so i had nerve i still have nerve damage in my other foot i can't walk barefoot in the foot that i still have I have nerve damage in this hand. I can't move this hand. This arm is a little messed up. Wow. So like, I wasn't, I, I didn't expect it. And um, I had to learn how to do everything all over again. I was 25 years old learning how to walk again, talk again. I had to learn how to eat again, swallow food, drink. Um, I had to learn how to move my hand again, which didn't come back until way after I got out of the hospital. Uh, although I had all of these physical ailments and all of these crazy obstacles to overcome i could say undoubtedly that the emotional and mental mental obstacles coming out of this were way worse than anything physical that my body went through and, and what were those what were those obstacles well i was i was i had to reinvent myself at 25 years old i lost my girlfriend my my car my i couldn't work at my career anymore i had no path in life i had no friends because all my friends were addicts and they didn't really care about me i lost all the people that really cared about me I was with it. I was a hundred pounds soaking wet. I didn't have a hand to work with. So I didn't know what I was going to do. I could barely see. I just learned how to walk. The doctors were telling me it was going to take two years to learn how to walk. I didn't have to make a friend at 25 years old. And I felt like I had nothing to offer anybody because I was just a an ex-junkie with one leg. I was like, what girl is going to want a guy with one leg when there's a million guys walking around with two? You know, these girlfriend, are the are you? I have a beautiful girlfriend. <laughs> And actually, you know, and, and, my, and it's just the, the, the mental obstacles that I was like, well, I was like, why would somebody that want somebody that's less like me? Like, I'm never going to be able to move my hand again. I talk like this. I have no career. I have no, no, 
no direction in life. I could barely see. I could barely walk. I was like, I'm not going to be able to do all the things that I've done my whole life. I'm an athlete. I needed that leg. I don't have a leg anymore. What, what, what value do I have to give to anybody? So I went through my anger and depression and all these different uh, stages of, uh, of grief. And I had two options. It was either, oh, poor me. I need people to take care of me in my life. Or suck it up. Take my, weak, my biggest weakness and turn it into my biggest strengths. Suck it all up and become the best, most strongest person that I can ever be and use all of these obstacles and things that I went through as, as tests of my might and my strength and to show everybody, believe in me, or, the, or even myself, that I can do absolutely anything and I'm completely limitless. So I made a list of every single thing in the hospital I thought I wouldn't be able to accomplish and I checked off every single one of them. Now, I may not have a leg. I may not be physically the same person as I was before I went into the hospital, but I am 10 times the person that I ever was when I was on drugs. I am stronger, better, smarter, more driven, more passionate about life. I wake up every morning and I step on my ground with one foot. I put my other foot in my other leg and I thank God every single morning when I wake up that I'm alive and that I have another chance at life and I'm not going to give it back. And uh, when I was in the hospital, my stepmother believed in me so much, but she passed away from cancer after uh, my birthday, actually, when I got out, just when she realized that I was okay. She had stage four cancer. She was taking care of me in the hospital. But when she realized that I was okay on my birthday, she passed away because she was able to let go because she knew I was okay. But she always used to tell me that you're going to do something amazing in life. And I didn't really know what that meant. So uh, she passed away and... Um, she, told, she always told me you should write a book and whatnot, but I was always tired of seeing these negative stories about people dying in the news. So I wrote to the Sunday Advance and I told them my story and they were so inspired by it and the, the attitude that I had about it, that fact I was going to school and getting straight A's in school and doing all these amazing things that they published it on the front page of the Sunday Advance. Now at this point, a bunch of organizations reached out to me and wanted to do stories speak at their events and I never public spoke or anything but the first time I spoke at a community event in front of kids I fell in love I fell in love with the process I fell in love with giving back to people it just gave me so much more than I can ever give anybody back and it was like such a selfless feeling but it was so gratifying I feel like when you give you just get so much back in return just emotional bank account just gets totally replenished every time that I help a person and I and I tell everybody when I after I finish a speech at when I speak at a high school or intermediate school or a community board I'm like if I saved one kid one family from going through what I went through or what I put my whole family through then what I went through was all worth it you know and I've and I've helped people in my family I've had people reach out to me on Facebook on my Instagram and uh, I've got them into programs and I've got them help I've given them inspiration I you know, I've, I've like helped them and coached them through their issues and really got them into a great place. And a lot of people I've gotten clean and I've given a lot of people inspiration and motivation to better their lives. So I started uh, volunteering in the hospital. I did one-on-one -on -one trauma mentoring, which changed my life in the hospital for overdose patients and people that lost their limbs. So I would talk to kids and talk to adults that either lost their limb or coming straight out of an overdose. And I started helping them. And I like helping them, basically coaching them one-on-one, -on -one, assimilating, helping them assimilate to society, tell them what they expect, give them a little words of inspiration, motivation, tell them that they could do it. Like unleash that warrior that's living inside of them that they have, that they need to get out there and show them how strong they are. And 
uh, inspired me on a whole path of self-development and improvement. And I, I ended up, winded up going to Tony Robbins event and I decided that I wanted to become like, I have, I, I got a psychology degree in, in psychology, bachelor's in psychology, and I wanted to go back to get my master's to open up a private practice that specializes a psychotherapist office that specializes in traumas and addiction. And I wanted to do that. And then I went to the Tony Robbins event, UPW event, and it gave me such fire and fuel. And I started doing that. And then I went to date with destiny. And then I get certified as a life coach. And I've been helping people with that. And everything's just been culminating to so much things. And it actually came back to a kid that I helped in the, in the hospital. Uh, he was a 20 year old kid. He just overdosed. He was blind. He couldn't see, he couldn't talk. He was, he's, he had so many different issues and I inspired him so much that two years later they did a documentary on me. He actually reached out to me and we did the documentary together. And now I'm coaching him to learn how to speak to kids in high schools. And I just been like every, everything in my purpose in my life's all come to a head. And uh, it's just been so fulfilling. And I actually found my purpose in life. And I feel like I have such a gift to give back to so many people that other people just don't have because they haven't experienced it and they haven't lived it. And I can relate to so many people in so many different aspects because I've been addicted to everything. And I've gone through so many trials and tribulations and it made me nothing but stronger. So I, start, I, I, I believe in the AA uh, program and everything, but a lot of people get shunned by it because they don't want to do that. And uh, I really been focusing on um, empowering people in recovery. Like I started the recovery warriors and uh, you know, and uh, I'm the one legged warrior and I've been really, really helping these kids, like give them strength and empower and show them how strong they are and show them that they have abilities and capabilities to do absolutely anything. And it's been really thriving. And I love to show people their fullest potential and it's just been nothing but fulfillment. And I'm really, really excited to, to, to just touch as many people as I can. And I love it. <laughs> I love it. So, so incredible. How do you, like, this strength that you have, like, is so inspiring and motivating. And, like, if someone's listening right now and they're just like, dude, this guy Kevin is on fire. He's pumping me up. I'm excited. And they want to continue it forward. Like, they want to build more. Like, every time I talk to you, I just see more strength and more passion and more dedication. And you've been through so much and you've overcome so much and it's given you this strength in many ways. And some of it maybe just innately was inside of you. But for someone who's listening right now, who's just kind of going through life and they're like, I want that passion, that strength, that hunger. Like, how can they build that too? Well, I wasn't always like this because when I was on drugs or even going out, I was like one of those type of people like, oh, poor me. Everything's happening to me. Why me? Why me? And it would snowball effect and what you ask from this universe, it gives back tenfold. So if you're going to be a negative Nancy and you're going to be like, I can't do this and I can't do that and all bad things happen, well, you know what? Guess what? You're going to attract things like that in your life to you. But what I did was I took my biggest weakness, something that I felt was my weakness, and I found a way to manipulate it and make it my strength. If, so, if you could take your biggest weakness and turn it into a strength, you are unstoppable. And every time, for, for me, for instance, like I had one leg. I was like, oh, I'm not going to be able to dance or I'm not going to be able to go to the beach. What I do, I dragged my ass to the beach and I hopped all the way to the beach and I dove into that water and I swam like a dolphin. You know? <laughs> I didn't think I could dance. I do a mean two-step with one foot. I won a sexy leg contest on a cruise. 
Hell yeah. I swung, I took my leg off and I swung it around my head. I said, sexy is like 2016, let's go. And I won the competition. I won a Ninja Warrior contest in the Dominican Republic. A hundred people tried it with two legs. I did the whole thing with one leg and I killed it. You have to give yourself obstacles because growth gets, gets, happens in, the, in your places of uncomfortability. So you give yourself uh, a goal or something that's a little bit out of your reach and you accomplish that and you get that confidence. Then you, then you go for a goal that's a little further than that. And then you accomplish that and then you get that confidence. And you keep pushing yourself to the limit. And the more you accomplish, the more confident you get in yourself, the more unbreakable, bulletproof that you become. And you just thrive to challenge yourself and find something that you can't do, but you know you can. And you, and you realize that nothing is impossible. I've accomplished so many things in my life that I never thought in a million years I could do. I was never a student. I was the kid that got girls to do my homework in class. I didn't do homework. I sat in the back. I smoked pot. I played sports. I got through school unscathed, but I didn't do nothing. I was lazy. Now I get straight A's in college. You know, now I go to, go to seminars and I kill and I become leaders. And, and I, Tony Robbins, man, I was the leader. People did. My leaders, uh, my leaders in my group was giving me cards and giving me all these recommendations. And just, I, I was, uh, they were like kind of contagious. My energy was contagious because energy is contagious. When you believe in yourself, when you have that fire of, about life, it just, it builds on itself. You know, I make sure that I surround myself with positive people, people that challenge me, people that make me want to be better. I like people that I can learn something from and that I like to give value to people. So I'm actually valuable. When I meet a new person, they're interested in meeting me because I give it my all. And if I don't know how to do it, I fake it till I make it, you know, I fake it till I make it. And then eventually I make it, you know, yeah. it, it's just the bottom line. You know, you got, you, your growth happens in places of uncomfortability and you only live one life. So there's no point of living, playing it safe and everything. You know, I, how many times I fell on my face. That's why this face is all, you know, I fell on my face so many times, <laughs> you know, I mean, but I got back up and I, and I learned something from it. I've learned a million I learned every single one of my lessons through mistakes. I made a thousand mistakes before I made the right answer. You know, I've, I've, I've done all the wrong things. And eventually I got the right thing. And, I, and when I found out what the right thing was to do, I, I stuck with it. You know? So, you know, there's, there's no shame in, shame in your game if you fail or you fall on your face. Because you always learn something from what you do. There's no point of not trying. You know, so the advice that I can give to somebody is go out there, go after your dreams, try something, push yourself to another limit that you didn't think was possible because you never know, you never know what you're capable of. I had a list of about a hundred different things that I didn't think I could do because I couldn't move this hand. I used to write righty. I was a righty. I used to do everything righty, but I couldn't move this wrist. Now I write lefty. Now I box lefty. Now I do everything with my left hand. Within a matter of six months to a year, I learned how to do everything with my left hand. Amazing. Do you know what I'm saying? So like you, you, you just don't know what your capabilities are until you try, until you test yourself, until you put yourself in that position. And my advice to anybody is go out for it because you will be shocked on what you're capable of if you give it, if you give it your all. Amazing. I love how you said just turn, turn your biggest weakness into your biggest strength because that, by that, you know, people, I feel like, many people are addicted to the weakness as a way to play victim and to say, Oh, I'm not going to go big. I'm not going to go hard. I'm not going to do this because I have this weakness. And if you flip it, then you have no excuse. 
I'll tell you what, I thought I was so insecure when I first got my, when I lost my leg, I was so insecure about it. I was like, I don't know how I'm going to make friends. I don't know how any girl is going to be attracted to me. I'll tell you this right now. One of the most attractive things that I've met many girls since I've lost my leg. The most attractive thing that they find about me is my scars, is my leg, is the fact that I'll swing my leg around at a party or I'll use, I'll cook a girl a romantic dinner and then I'll take my leg off. I'll take my leg off. I'll take it right off and then I'll fill this with ice and I'll put a bottle of champagne in there instead. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like the fact that I have no fear. I wear shorts. I, I For Halloween, I'll be a peg leg pirate or something crazy, you know? Like I just use it as a prop and I find it and I, and I can laugh about myself and I don't care about what anybody else thinks about me. And so you, I, I took my biggest weakness and I made it into my, my best biggest asset, you know? Yeah, and, and you own it. You're like you can own like... It. With these things in life, it's like we can try to hide it and we can put it down or wear pants or do everything we can to hang on to the shame about it and, and put it in the closet. Or you could wear it, you know, right across your chest and be like, I'm one-legged fucking Superman and here's who I am <laughs> and I'm going to have fun with this. And if you want to make fun of me, I'll, I'll laugh. And, you know, it's like whatever. Like you just, you own it and you don't try to hide it. I, I think is just amazing. Thank you. Yeah. Anyway, dude, that's just incredible. And uh, before we just call it, let's, uh, what's like the parting wisdom? I mean, I know there's just like, you can help everyone. So I'd love just like parting wisdom generally to listeners. But if you also have anything specifically to say to people who might even be in denial about what they're doing or using, like maybe just something you could say to help reach them. Um, well, what I can say is everybody on this planet is addicted to something. You know, choose your poison, <laughs> whether it be food, whether it be drugs, whether it be sex, whether it be action, adrenaline, some, you're addicted to something. So there's no shame in admitting that you have a problem because it's probably affecting your life in one way or another. Uh, there is help out there. Uh, there is so many different avenues out there. Um, and, you know, like I said, I mean, you're, you're capable of, of anything. You just have to put yourself out there and really... Um, Go for it, you know. Um, I like working with people with addiction because I feel like they're very strong individuals, you know. And uh, and um, yeah, I mean, like I said, I I love to see the full potential of everybody. So you know, um, yeah, find something that works for you. Whether you go to do AA, whether you look for uh, support groups or a coach or whatever the case may be, go to go to events. There's something, there's some kind of flavor that, that suits you the best. Yeah. You know, my, I mean, my approach is, is empower, like when I speak to my clients, I, I, I empower them. I give them strength. I give them uh, transformational things to, to actually switch, switch their psyche from being a victim to being a savage warrior. You know what I'm saying? Like grabbing, grabbing life by the horns and just taking it and just finding your passion. When you find passion in life, you're not worried about all those other things. You know, so you got to find what's passionate in your life and what suits you best and what fits you the, the best and uh, run with it, man. Amazing. Kevin, thank you so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate your time. It was a pleasure. Take care, Brendan.